Welcome to the 13th episode of the official Asbegan podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, what time of day it ever is, wherever you are. I'm speaking remotely from Hungary to Cambridge, England where our interview partner for today is Marco Gasparetto. Marco is, as you might guess from his name, Italian, and born in Italian rather than, uh, excuse me, born in Italy, that didn't go well, born in Italy rather than a second generation. He's another example of the internationality of medicine, of pediatric medicine, and of pediatric gastroenterology and hepatology. His particular field of interest is something that I haven't had a lot to do with during my professional career. He's a hollow viscous man. He's an inflammatory bowel disease man. He's a genetics of inflammatory bowel disease man and a personalized medicine for inflammatory bowel disease man. Talk about specialized. He's here to tell us a little bit about what he's been doing in order to make it possible for inflammatory bowel disease treatment to advance on a basic science foundation. Marco, welcome. Good morning, Alex, and good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you ever so much for inviting me on this uh, podcast. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I don't know if I should start saying something about myself and my journey so far, and then we can chat about um, precision medicine in pediatric inflammatory bowel disease later on. Is this uh, what I'm you going expect to jump right in. I'm going to jump right in now and say that he's been working so hard all his <laughs> life that he doesn't even have time to have a pet. I found, <laughs> I found that out in his curriculum. <laughs> yeah. um, so you started out, of course, near Padua in Italy. You and I have already had a little bit of a chit-chat about what native English speakers know about Padua. And you um, mentioned to me that it has a long and proud tradition of medical research and medical education. You got an early start, didn't you? Um, something about a high school for the scientifically minded? <laughs> yeah, that, that's correct. Yes, I've always been into science somehow. And although my passion has always been music, so I'm a bit sort of, you know, in between. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, um, it, I was very uh, fortunate to, to study in Padua. Um, it's the second oldest university in Italy. So lots of tradition, lots of um, tradition in medical school, medical sciences. Um, very early on during university, I developed this interest for pediatric inflammatory bowel disease. And towards the end of my training in pediatrics, I then moved to the UK. I moved to Cambridge, where again, I was very lucky to join uh, the group of uh, Matt Zilbauer and his laboratory. And that really opened the doors for me um, towards uh, translational research. I looked at some uh, potential signatures or signals from CD8 lymphocytes that um, okay. uh, we... Okay, now you're on my turf and you're moving a little bit too fast. Um, are you yourself a Padovese? Uh, we call ourselves Padovani or Padovano. Padovani, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. And the answer is yes or no? You're you're a hometown boy? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, definitely. I was born in Padova and yeah, I grew up there, uh, definitely from there. 
Okay, so that's where... And then medical school, medical school and during medical school at the University of Padua developed an interest in inflammatory bowel disease. How? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, in life it's about being in the right place at the right time or in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I just basically happened to find a placement um, in pediatric gastroenterology within the Department of Pediatrics, I always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician. And I, um, well, I was lucky to meet a very inspiring professor. There was Professor Guarizo, who um, was very keen on my training. She taught me endoscopies. She was keen on me embarking on research, for example. And my um, thesis work for graduation from medical school was really about comparing children and adults with inflammatory bowel disease. This was, you know, a few years ago. Now I've got the hook. Now I've got the hook that I need. All right. (laughs) Here is our freshly hatched pediatric gastroenterologist, ready for a placement, a clinical placement and a research placement at the same time, or was it principally research that took you to Cambridge? Um, It was initially clinical, but then after one or two years, um, I applied for a fellowship that was 80% research. 20% 20% clinical. So I was an IBD fellow doing mostly research, but that also gave me the opportunity to maintain my clinical skills, like, you know, endoscopies and outpatient, inpatient care. But gotcha. it was more gotcha. research focused. More research focused. And at that time, you had the idea, was it your idea or was it proposed to you that you take a look at recent work that had purportedly shown a signature in terms of gene activation patterns in a particular kind, a particular subpopulation of cells that mediate the immune response. Uh, Yes, indeed. We're talking over each other, we're watching each other, and each of us is ready to jump in. Let me start again with that. So a particular subpopulation of cells, T cells, CD8 coding T cells, and you wanted again to compare that pattern in children with the results of research that had been reported in adults. Correct. Uh, so this was proposed to me, you know, by my supervisors. There was um, evidence and uh, lots of interest in such signatures in adult patients with IBD. And of course, the topic of identifying a prognostic biomarker is still very hot in IBD because, of course, it would revolutionize the way we look after these patients. So based on the interesting adult results, we thought it would be absolutely important to validate, to check if these signals and signatures can play a role in the pediatric population as well. So that was the first attempt ever to look uh, out for the signatures in children. And, you know, Cambridge uh, looked like the right place to do that because of the previous research coming from the adult colleagues. The adult colleagues. That is to say, you're over there in the pediatric wards and you're coming up to the adults and saying, um, what you say may be true, but it may not hold for children. And as you assembled your cohorts of pediatric patients, you said, do you know, Let's go and look at some additional adult patient cohorts and see if this information that's coming from our colleagues a couple of stories away in the hospital uh, can be verified. 
It's not just a compare kids with adults. It's a compare kids and different cohorts of adults with this hitherto, or sorry, with this theretofore unverified uh, information about signatures. Correct. And I think, you know, this was crucial and this taught me a lot about the importance of validating your findings and validating your results. Because, and, because you couldn't validate the results. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't see a correlation in my, my own pediatric population. It was like a, you know, a biggish, a decent pediatric population size. We had like 130 children right. who were newly diagnosed, prospective, you know, everything was there. But we couldn't, we couldn't see uh, this signatures from the CDA gene expression patterns uh, correlate with uh, prognostic outcomes in uh, pediatric IBD. So we, yeah, we, we thought it was very important before we would share the results to also look uh, into other pre-existing cohorts, either pediatric or adult, doesn't really matter. But yeah, I think I learned a lot about the importance of validating and validating before you share the news around biomarkers. Let me put a hand up for let me put a hand up for those poor adult gastroenterologists who must have felt very threatened, uh, because once you get to be an adult, you've gone through a lot more. Were all of the adult gastroenterology patients naive? Were they first diagnosed patients as your patients were first diagnosed? Had there been a modulation, perhaps? Absolutely. This is a very good point. They were not all newly diagnosed and, you know, off treatments. Some of them were already on treatments, as opposed to our cohort, the children were all uh, treatment naive. But, you know, I think one thing that I really learned from this is we know children and adults are not the same. A child is not just a, a small adult. We all know that. And right, I right. think, you know, uh, what we see in pediatric inflammatory bowel disease, for example, is that majority of our children are quite severe in their disease course. They, you know, get complications and treatment escalations. So that's less heterogeneity compared to the other populations. So probably it's unrealistic to expect that one parameter can really fit all children and tell you who is going to be mild, who's going to be severe, because probably the majority of children we look after will end up being, in inverted commas, severe. So yeah, it, it, there was lots of learning about what's important when you look for a biomarker and what you really want to look at and which population. Let me go to a study that I, I expect that you have underway right now. Your initially treatment-naive patients, your pediatric patients, are now several years out. Some of them have responded. Some of them have not. Some of them have initially responded and relapsed. Some of them have responded to one drug but not another. What kind of signatures are you seeing in their T-cells now, after treatment? Um, this is basically ongoing. So as well as um, analyzing signatures from newly diagnosed children, where we took blood samples, uh, we also took um, um, subsequent samples during the disease course. And uh -huh. of course, that was matched with whether they were in remission or whether they were relapsing. So this is still sort of being looked into. I haven't got final results. What is very important is that um, there's a clinical trial. Um, so uh, the, the adult gastroenterologists are still looking at a prospective adult cohort uh, who starts 
you know, off treatments, newly diagnosed, and then they're rechecking the same. Uh, so I think, you know, this is all ongoing and there might be um, developments and news and new results. But of course, what I published in Gastroenterology in 2020 was all about um, newly diagnosed children, investigated or tested at diagnosis. We uh, could not identify um, relevant or significant correlations by looking at follow-up samples either. So, uh, but like I said, this is still being looked into. Okay, thank you very much. This takes us, I think, into another of the pieces of work that you wanted us to give prominence to in this interview. And that's your work on monitoring drug concentrations prospectively following along closely in children with inflammatory bowel disease and seeing whether or not close monitoring and dose adjustment can prolong an initial response, can make a drug usable longer. Have I summed up the purpose of that study adequately? Absolutely. And I think this is so exciting. Like to me, this is the present and the future. Um, Whoa, you know, this... Okay, here we go. <laughs> well, you know, it's all about personalizing treatment. It's not like individual personalization yet, but it's a way to tell your pa patients, I've got treatments for you and I'm able to tell you which dose I should give you today, as opposed to using the same protocol for all children, irrespective of monitoring so we you didn't have used to go to... into detail here you just have to <laughs> i mean we didn't used to have this um these tests you know five or ten years ago aza cyoprene metabolites telling you should i go up with the dose should i come down with the dose should i fix the metabolite ratio and none of that was available so of course we would give the right dose as in milligrams per kilo day but you'd never know how that really fits with the individual patient's metabolism and you know some of the side effects might be dose related others are not but at least that proportion you can really prevent and also you can make sure that you're giving the most effective chance to your patients to respond to that drug. And similarly, of course, with the biologics, anti-TNF, trust level and anti-drug antibody, to be able to know, you know, you're mounting an antibody, um, anti-drug response. Uh, hence, I have to switch your biologic and, and switch to a different uh, one or out of class sometimes. It's so important and relevant when you proactively optimize treatment management I, I've seen, I've demonstrated that that really prevents disease flare-up and optimizes the patient's care and the disease course um, really effectively. That's uh, very now give exciting. Us some, now give us some specifics from that study of yours. Not everybody will have read it. So how many patients did you look at again? So it was a small, it was a small cohort study. It was around 40 patients, but it's a nice, it's an interesting story. So I moved from Cambridge to the UK, um, to the, to London, sorry, uh, around four years ago. Uh, that was before the pandemic. And, um, in Cambridge, we used to check the, um, biologic trust level and the anti-drug antibody only if and when the patient was not doing, they were not responding, they were, you know, uh, showing signs of a relapse. In London, they were switching between reactive and towards proactive. So you check it anyway, and you may act upon that result, that number. Stop for, just a second. Stop for just a second. In, I'm going to go back 
to an organ that I know a little bit about, which is the transplanted liver. Yeah. It's, my impression is that you monitor immunosuppressant levels regularly in patients who've had a liver transplant rather than waiting for them to go down the tubes. Okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, IBD is, is definitely different, but um, I think, you know, we've seen the transition from reactive, so you only do it when, when, when it's clinically needed, to proactive. So you do it and then you act uh, trying to anticipate the disease flare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've kind of witnessed this um, uh, over the past four years or so. So because I was new in London, new job and new consultant position and everything, I thought... I want to do a quality improvement project to really prove and demonstrate is doing proactive TDM, therapeutic drug monitoring, more beneficial than going reactive. And um, in my cohort, in our cohort at the Royal London Hospital, we proved that there was so much benefits from using proactive in that patients who stay on the same biologic for longer because, of course, you optimize the dose and, you know, you minimize reactions or loss of response. And uh, also, you know, we saw um, fewer hospitalizations, fewer endoscopies. There was a number of benefits that we could see in two years follow-up across 40 children we analyzed. It's a small study, but um, it was a pleasure for me to be involved in this quality improvement experience. So you see, you, know, you obtain your levels and you say, hmm, they're dropping or they've dropped. And then you crank up the dose a bit, right? And Correct. Then, okay. All right. Now, I'm, I'm kind of curious here. Um, how is it that adjusting the dose, as you've been doing, modulates the patient's own response in terms of making antibodies? against that. I, uh, I'm i not an immunologist, but I bet you know somebody who is, and I bet that you and she or he have talked about this. What's the mechanism by which this might improve results? It's so interesting, and I'm not an immunologist either, but um, <laughs> what I understand is a sort of negative feedback. So we, we know, uh-huh. and that's, you know, that's proven, that when you manage to optimize the trust level, so you got higher dose of, you know, circulating uh, biologic, that sort of inhibits the uh, anti-drug, antibody production from your organism. Um, and not only oh, no, you've, you've just you've just it you've just said and then this happens oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we, we have rescued a number of children who had you know moderate to high for example anti-infliximum antibody by optimizing their dose and going for 10 per kilo every six weeks instead of every eight weeks we could then witness we could see the antibody level drop and the patient responding better and you can do that before you consider switching to another biologic either within the same class or out of class so it's a way of optimizing your minimal resources in ibd we haven't got many drugs um, so it's it's worth trying to Marco, keep on the same i'm drug. loving this i totally believe what you're saying i know you saw <laughs> it and i'm but i'm still as a lay person in terms of both ibd and immunology I don't get how it works. I don't, this negative feedback, 
Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, and, and not only we see this, but we also see, for example, you know, combining combining an other immunomodulator like azathioprine and infliximab will re reduce the production of anti-infliximab antibody. So the, the presence Get of azathioprine here. in yes. combination will. Uh, so we all know that in pediatric gastroenterology, I'm not sure all of us can explain why exactly, but it's it's observed and it's uh, it, it's a known. Uh, recent known thing. <laughs> well, if it works and we can use it, then that's grand. No question about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and it certainly poses interesting questions about the physiology of modulating the immune response, which brings us to back to basic science. You don't need a, an MD to go after those questions of immunology and and modulation of the immune response. I don't think so. I mean, if I were, if, put it this way, if you were 20 years further along in your career, the distinguished professor of something at somewhere, then, and you wanted to go after this, you'd probably say, let's just hire a PhD and put a pack of postdocs on this problem. You wouldn't necessarily say, let's, uh, see if we can find a young clinician who wants to take this on. Clinicians tend to do clinical work and basic researchers tend to do basic research work. And it's really good to have them in the same building. It's really good to have them where they share lunch and can chit chat. Is that the take home message of the other article that you recommended to us? Absolutely. I mean, I've always believed in translational research and I, I truly believe the future is for clinicians to be interested in research, for researchers to understand the clinical side of things with a uh, increasing collaboration between the two sides, be it either chit-chatting and working in the same environment, but also, I believe, being research active as clinicians or be clinically oriented as researchers. So. I truly believe the future lies there. Um, Tell us about the study that you conducted. Uh, so far as I know, it's appeared only as a preprint. Is it still in the press? Which study are you, uh, you see, uh, referring uh, to now? Yeah, Gasparetto was first author. You know the guy? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it was it the uh, therapeutic drug monitoring one? Uh, for no, no, not, not not that one. This is the one. The survey. Of oh. SP okay, so yeah, yeah. Now, uh, okay. So many, so many articles, so many first <laughs> authorships. Okay, <laughs> no, that that was a, a lovely um, S composition paper where I had the opportunity to chair the ESCAN Specialist Interest Group for Basic Science and Translational Research. So it's me as chair, but I'm surrounded by an amazing group of people. Some of them are a bit younger, some of them are much older and more experienced. And uh, so I'm very, very well placed in that working group. And yeah, so we basically as a group wanted to look into ways that ESCAN can use to implement and uh, progress research-wise looking at the future. So what are the trajectories, um, you know, within each main pediatric gastropathology nutrition area and how can ESCAN help members, including young members, to do more research, to, to be more research active. And, you know, research is changing, like you mentioned, lots of translational elements, but also lots of data analysis, computing uh, elements. And we are not necessarily well trained uh, on any of 
this, you know, new angles. Uh, so it'd be great if the society could boost some uh, training opportunities. We are trying to make this happen throughout the, the special interest group. And there are many projects that are hopefully about to happen um, that will offer all of us the opportunity to understand and be hands-on with data analysis more and more. So we also understand the sort of systems biology kind of part of, of the complex research we perform. I didn't quite get that get that take-home message from the paper. Um, I was a little bit uh, at a loss at the end of it as to what ESPGAN now proposes concretely to do. What steps are being discussed beyond your uh, special interest group? What steps are being taken to counsel for action? Um, I am positive. I think, you know, that there's lots that the society is uh, doing or is willing to, to be doing soon. Um, for example, there is a young Eskan mentorship program. I think that's brilliant and it's coordinated by some of the young ESCAM members and uh, representatives and that really, you know, pairs up young members with more senior um, ESCAM members so they can get um, um, support and tutoring and mentorship um, in whatever area of their career they need guidance, including research. Um, within my own working group, we are, like I said, trying to start a an initiative where one or two successful members, because it goes by application, will move for a few weeks to a big center where there is a bioinformatician or a biostatistician uh, who can teach and can, you know, analyze data together with the successful candidate so they learn how to do it um, practically. Um, so we are aiming to establish a network of experienced ESCAM members that can help and support at least Europe-wide, if not worldwide, you know, looking at the future. And we are realizing how fast things are changing and what the needs are for the present and future. So I think that was a positive um, paper. Um, it, I, I could feel this was all uh, supported all around across ESCAM. Uh, I believe we share all these values and, and this vision of the future. Funding, the crucial word. <laughs> yes. Where is the money to come from to subtract somebody from a clinical team and to support her when she heads off to somebody else's lab for say, a six-month attachment? You need enough time to really get into biostatistics, I would think. I'm maybe an entire year's worth of fellowship. Absolutely. I mean, money is always a problem, isn't it? And it's so sad. But uh, <laughs> we have tried to look into ways of fixing this. So uh, first thing, uh, luckily, one of the very few good things that came from the pandemic is we can do more remotely. So we could, for example, guide the candidates mm -hmm. in online courses where they can learn the basics or where they go and spend six weeks in Scotland or Australia. They will have uh, some basic knowledge and they will be you know, uh, more ready to understand the data analysis and, and, and the subsequent steps and things that they need to um, to learn. Of course, in terms of um, funds, it would be important, uh, in my opinion, to liaise with adult societies and to try and 
you know, have partnerships and, and work together, which we are already doing, but it, it can be implemented. We could also consider charities in that, you know, ESCAN is uh-huh. I mean, definitely has the interest of the child's health. Uh, as top priority so I think there could be ways of collaborating with charities more, do some family days, family information events and things like that. So I I do think there are a few ideas for the future which we try to summarise in that paper Um, and um, we just need to believe in it and try to make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, think positively. Absolutely. I'm looking at the background in your office now. Of course, the folks at home won't be able to see this, but there's a framed proms poster. Of course. And (laughs) of course, he says. (laughs) And uh, sheet music, Tchaikovsky, Mendelssohn. Oh, yeah, 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 that's true. I'm practicing that. (laughs) (laughs) For what instrument then? So I played the violin and the piano and I started when I was five or six. So it's been a a whole life. Um, It's my biggest passion outside of work, I have to say. Okay, and violin and piano and, well, I need to apologize. Are you actually in London right now or are you out in Cambridge? I'm in London. Yes, I I lived in Cambridge six years and then uh, I moved to London four years ago. Right. Yeah. Do you maintain an appointment or an attachment there? With Cambridge, you mean? Yeah. And um, not at the moment, like not formally. I'm um, a consultant in London, and I'm mm-hmm. a, um, an honorary senior lecturer at the Queen Mary University of London. That's sort of affiliated to my London hospital. But uh, I have maintained very good collaborations with Cambridge. Sort of practically, we still, you know, uh, run research projects and studies together. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in touch with them. Trading data, trading ideas, <laughs> and maintaining your network, which is always so important. But life in London, where did you find to live? <laughs> I had to find somewhere near the hospital because uh, it's it's a very busy hospital. It's a very large unit. I've loved the job. It's in East London. There's lots of, um, you know, varying and different ethnic backgrounds. So it's a very interesting population to look after. And it's a great mission. It's a great, uh, it's a vocation, you know, as always in our job. Mm-hmm. I, I really mm-hmm. enjoy it. But yeah, I, I, I can see the hospital from my balcony, which is a bit daunting, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's handy. Get it's away. handy when, you, when you're on call, you know, it can help a lot. <laughs> so out in East London, and have you had a chance to explore four years? No, I'm going to I'm going to predict that you've been so busy at the hospital and in your lab that you haven't had a time to explore any part of London except the concert halls. Am I wrong <laughs> or am I right? I mean, you're partly right. Definitely, music is all ticked off, and uh, it's great to be in London if you love music. There, there's so many great events to to attend mm-hmm. and um, to participate in. Um, yeah, no, I, I think. Uh, it's been very hard in terms of life work balance, but I've always managed to um, look after myself a little bit. Like, you know, there was always a little bit of time for me to go for a run, to do music, to uh, catch up with friends. It's hard, but I have managed to make it happen. Um, the job definitely takes probably 80 to 90 percent of, of the whole time. But that little bit that's left um uh, you know, London is a nice place to be. <laughs> Where's home? 
home home home? oh gosh i don't know where where is home Uh, i'm italian i always be italian you know i moved to the uk when i was 30 so um but i've I've been in the uk for 10 years so 10 or 40 years uh, in the uk and 30 in italy i I feel you know I, i don't know i feel sort of adopted by the uk i love the uk and um it's given me uh, a chance to become the professional I wanted to be and to really love and enjoy my job 100%. I still love Italy a lot. It's always a pleasure to go there and visit family, catch up with friends. It's a beautiful country and quality of life is great. But so I I, I couldn't be able to choose probably. I, I love them both. They're, they're sort of complementary, aren't they? Uh, different countries, but equally um, very nice places. Were there any problems in adjusting as you, well, aside aside from English food, <laughs> were there any substantial problems in adjusting to a life in, in Cambridge? No, not really. I mean, I've always been an open-minded Italian. And so I, I was really keen to, you know, embrace the new culture, to meet local people, to have a new beginning, really. So I'm not the, the person who necessarily looks out for Italians. Um, the, the UK has always been very welcoming to me. Um, I met friends in Cambridge. I did music with them. I met friends in London. Um, I, I kind of feel international uh, and I'm proud of that like this is really the way I feel I love Padua I love my origins but I'm not necessarily uh, sort of fixated with that it's uh, I've always been very open and very keen to uh, travel and learn and discover what's the word campanilismo oh yeah that's the opposite (laughs) of this yes (laughs) well you can certainly you've certainly gone a long distance beyond where you can hear your own church's bells (laughs) <laughs> I'll say that. Yeah. But this comes around to the question now of, usually at this time in the conversation, we ask a, fr- we ask a guy, we ask a gal for a song. A <laughs> yes. S- a song. And now I am absolutely on tenterhooks. Is this going to be a British song or an it Italian is. song? A British song. A British song. I don't know. I just want it to be modern. And because it's summertime, I wanted a summery song. Because I Uh love music so much and I love so many songs. I have to say I haven't got one favorite song. There's so many that I love. So I just thought that I would Uh choose something that's, uh, you know, up to date. It's modern. It's recent. There's this British um, composer and singer called George Estra, um, who is very young. Uh, I think he he does really well. And um, yeah, I chose a song called Shotgun that's uh, recent and it's, uh, you know, happy vibes, summary sort of uh, spirit um, that I was keen to to choose as as a background for today. Homegrown alligator, see you later. Gotta hit the road, gotta hit the road. The sun ain't changed in the atmosphere. Architecture, I'm familiar. I could get used to this. Time flies by in the yellow and green. Stick around and you'll see what I mean. There's a mountain top. That I'm dreaming of If you need me, you know where I'll be I'll be riding shotgun Underneath the hot sun Feeling like a someone I'll be riding 
got a shotgun underneath the hot sun Feeling like you're someone South of the equator, navigator Gotta hit the road, gotta hit the road Deep sea diving round the clock Bikini bottoms, lager tops I could get used to this If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our SBGAN playlist. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us and to discuss your work and its implications and what next. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and it was great to meet you. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs>